Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and I am joined today by Mark Moyer, member of Hoover's Military History Working Group and senior fellow at the Joint Special Operations University. He's also the author of one of the pieces in the newest issue of Strategica addressing whether or not drones represent a revolutionary development in the conduct of warfare. So, Mark, in order to set the table for that question, uh, let's just start by defining our terms a little bit. When we look back on developments in military history, especially recent military history, what does qualify as a revolutionary change and what makes those kind of developments distinct from sort of your more garden variety changes in technology? I think you have to look for some kind of fundamental change in the character of warfare. Now, the like to say that the nature of warfare itself, the clash of wills among people, is unchanging. But the character of warfare can change uh, in terms of um, tactics, strategy, um, and operational art. And so we look for things that really cause fundamental change there, which is, of course, much less frequent than, than a lot of the more superficial changes you might see. So what are some examples of that in, in recent history, things that you would classify as revolutionary because of the changes that they they engendered? I'd say, for example, the development of the machine gun would qualify. It really shifted the balance from offensive to defensive. Uh, you saw that uh, no longer could massed infantry just move forward unimpeded in the face of machine gun fire. So that's... A, a good example. Uh, I think the aircraft carrier w- would be another, which you know, ended the reign of the armored warship as we know it, and vastly extended the ability of a naval vessel to see and to strike enemies. Now, you're not convinced that drones constitute anything like a revolutionary technology. And one of the factors that you cite in your piece for Strategica is that real revolutionary change using, for example, uh, the machine gun, which you just referenced, is felt everywhere. But with drones, you make the argument they're they're not actually of use everywhere. There are outside criteria that have to be met in order for a drone really to be of significant use. Explain that. Yeah, that's right. The drone has a lot of vulnerabilities that we don't necessarily think of because when we hear about drones, it's typically in a few places where they've worked effectively, Pakistan, Somalia, and Yemen being the most prominent examples. But you you actually have an unusual confluence of favorable circumstances in those countries. You have either a a non-functional government or a government that's willing to let foreign aircraft come into their airspace and do these things, which in in most parts of the world you're not going to have. You have an enemy that does not have surface-to-air missile capability because the drones are actually pretty slow moving and would be easy to shoot down. And you also have robust intelligence networks on the ground and the government's letting you do that because the targeting data still comes from – much of it comes from human intelligence sources. If you listen to the most fervent proponents of drones, the the argument that you often hear is, well, why why wouldn't you want to fight a war this way? You get – precision targeting. You essentially obviate the risks of casualty to our side. You have a much lighter logistical burden to bear than you would with any other comparable technology. And the, the argument is this is the way 21st century warfare should look. It's precise. It's antiseptic. It's 
driven by technology. Uh, what's wrong with that argument, Mark? What are the shortcomings of it? You know, I think drones can have some value in a limited sense, but when you start talking about using them as a strategic weapon or as, as the only real weapon in your arsenal, uh, you find, I mean, for one thing, a lot of countries, it's simply not going to be a viable option uh, because the circumstances required to use them aren't there. And what we're also seeing is that in the countries where they've been used, especially Pakistan, they're starting to create a backlash against the United States. And, and so countries are putting more and more restrictions on what we can do. You know, the number of drone strikes in, in Pakistan has fallen quite a bit. And we see a lot of you know, outcry from the Pakistani people and government, which makes it harder for us to get their cooperation. And it's really, you know, to fight terrorism in a place like Pakistan, you really need cooperation from the local government more than you need to be able to kill a few people from the skies. So play this forward for me. What are the what are the dangers? Is it just that we end up being disappointed that this technology is not offering a change quite as sweeping as what some people may have anticipated? Or is there a broader concern that this causes military leadership or civilian leadership or even the public at large to start thinking about war in the wrong way? Yeah, I think it's it's both of those things. And if you look at what's going on right now, the uh, U.S. government has been cutting the size of its military, especially its ground forces, and one of the rationale that's being advanced to do that is that with the drones we can do things with this lighter footprint. We don't need to have large ground forces, and uh, you know, in the in the short term that may seem plausible, but if you look back throughout history, you know, most of the time the United States and other countries get into wars that they did not foresee. And, you know, we may even say now, well, we don't want to do this counterinsurgency stuff anymore. We don't want to fight a ground war. And um, maybe, you know, in the next year or two, that seems pretty unlikely. But again, nobody knows where we'll be 10 years from now. And I think the chances are good that we're going to have to have larger ground forces or otherwise be able to fight some kind of conflict in which the drone is not going to be particularly helpful. So is it fair to say that this is a case where there may be a premium that's been placed on drones that is oversold because they're sort of uniquely calibrated for the kind of conflicts we're fighting now, even if that doesn't really play forward? Yeah, I think that's that's fair to say. And again, you know, it happens that Somalia, Yemen, and Pakistan are all pressing issues right now. But uh, you know, who, who's to say that Iran or North Korea or someplace else is not going to be the pressing issue in, in a couple of years forward. So once we've gotten past the sort of initial technophilia and we end up having to take the measure of drones based on their, their actual abilities and their actual limitations, where does this end up? What role do you think drones play in the conflicts of the future? Well, I think they're most effective when they are supplementing other things that we already have. And you know, the technology itself is really not all that new. We've had the ability to look at things from the skies and had the ability to strike from the sky. Uh, you know, the drone does enable us to attack without fear of losing pilots, which in an era where we're so afraid of civilian casualties or captured pilots, uh, you know, that's a significant factor. But, uh, you know, this, it, in, in most cases, the nature of, uh, I should say, the character of war still requires 
ground forces in particular, uh, oftentimes other air and naval forces. So I think it's important that when you're able to, to use it as a support within the broader military. And we've seen it used quite effectively in that way in Iraq and Afghanistan. I'll put the same question to you that I put to Tom Donnelly, who also wrote for this issue when we talked to him. There is a criticism of drones that you hear fairly often that they cheapen the sort of the psychological cost of war, that because you've got somebody sitting in a facility somewhere controlling these things by remote, that there's a, there's a dehumanizing quality and that maybe at some level that that makes the cost of war seem cheaper. Is that something that strikes you as a, a serious concern or something that's a little bit more overblown? Uh, I'd say that's probably a bit overblown in, in the sense that we've been going through the process of dehumanizing more in that respect for for you know, centuries, you know, going back to the catapult and the bow, bow, uh, bow and arrow, you see you know, humans striking from a greater and greater distance. Now, drones are, you know, a bit unusual in that uh, the operators are all but invulnerable. Um, I, don't, I don't get the sense it's causing us necessarily to be much more prepared to use this form of warfare. Um, you know, I do think there is the, it does feed into this concern from foreign countries that that we're not fighting in a normal way and that, you know, it's a, it's an unfair fight in that we're not putting ourselves at risk and we're just sending these robots over to kill them. So I think there's at least subconsciously a certain amount of resentment in, in that respect. So, Mark, final question. If you're an enemy of the United States, maybe you're a terrorist organization like al-Qaeda, maybe you're a nation state, maybe you're Iran or to take a more complicated example, China. You look at the U.S. and our attitudes towards drones. Your calculations are affected how? The it certainly changes how you operate. Uh, you know, and it's interesting too, as with any other weapon, the enemy does learn how to adapt. You know, it is interfering and complicating what they do in terms of how they communicate, you know, they, they've figured out that it's, you know, a lot of their communications can be intercepted, so they've got to find different ways to communicate. It makes it more difficult for them to run an organization. Uh, but, but, you know, they certainly have shown in a number of places that drones cannot completely put an end to what they're doing. So, so I think they're, you know, they've been learning how to adapt and how to adjust in this environment, and certainly it's probably in the countries where it's working, it may be something that they have to contend with over the long term. All right, Mark, thank you, and thanks as always to our listeners. My guest has been Mark Moyer, member of Hoover's Military History Working Group and senior fellow at the Joint Special Operations University. You can read his essay and all those in our newest issue by visiting hoover.org forward slash strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution. Thank you for listening.